Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm here with my great friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I am very well, Walker. How are you? Always good. And this is a board gaming podcast about board games. And boy, do we play a lot of board games. You see the dog sled, Canadian dog sled, board game pack mule pulled in. And we finally got a bunch of games in that we got to play. So let's just get right into it and start talking about stuff. First thing, we're going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly to the minute one year ago. Then we're going to talk about the games we played this week, which will be uh, about three hours. Then we'll talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we'll go to the topic this week, which is... Lifetime games. What makes for a lifetime game? So on to the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Eurus. Last year we reviewed Kalamala by Fabio Lopiano. I have played Kalamala a couple of times since we reviewed it. Not as much as I would like to have played it. I, it's still a very, very solid middleweight Euro game. Yeah, I talked to it in the same vein as Carl Magnus or the big, the Chucky Mags. The fact that you get so much game in so little time, right? It's about 30 to 45 minutes and there's a ton of game in there in both those circumstances. I've introduced it to a number of different people and everyone is very taken by the action selection mechanism. Because, quite frankly, it's very clever and it makes the game. The rest of the game is is perfectly fine. I love Area Majority and the scoring elements are awfully cute in the way that it's varied in terms of the activation order is nice. But really, it's all about the lovely element of placing your discs and having both actions trigger. I am very happy that it's in a kind of rotation. I wish we were in a market where we had slightly more time to savor those designs that we really appreciate from all of three years ago when it was published. Oh, I remember three years ago. And I remember being very disappointed by Lopiano's follow-up, namely Ragusa. That did not please me nearly so well. And that is Kalamala from one year ago. Now, onto the games that we played this week. Let's start off with High Rise from Gil Hova, published by Formal Ferret Games. So this is a game where you're building giant skyscrapers, and you're there has a giant, I guess you'd call it a rondelle. Would you call it a rondelle? I suppose. As a giant rondelle and has what I call a ketchup sort of mechanic. Not really sort of ketchup in points, but more of the condiment. More of the condiment type. Whereas you get you keep taking actions until you've caught up to the other person's pawn, I guess you can say. There's a giant action selection wheel going around the outside of the board. My only misgiving in labeling it a rondelle is that you only go around it two or three times, depending on what game mode you're selecting. So it, it lacks a certain element of those trade-offs that I associate more clearly with rondelles. But it does have that element of efficiency, because as you say, if you go and grab that action early, you're going to be sitting there waiting while your opponents get to do several actions in succession. And being in a position where you can reliably do several actions without your opponents replying is quite powerful, although sometimes you have to make that trade-off. So that element I thought was awfully neat. Yeah, I thought the trade-off was definitely there because there were circumstances where spaces actually got blocked and, you know, times where people went, you know, halfway around the board to make sure they got the actions that they needed. The actual payoff in terms of the game satisfied me a little less. There's this element of having to build skyscrapers, which are built out of very specific recipes of specific resources. And among them, there's this one resource called ultraplastic, hence the ultraplastic edition that was on Kickstarter recently with fully plastic buildings. We played the normal cardboard version because that's the version that's available. And you'd remarked about halfway through the game in one turn that there was just no opportunity for ultraplastic until you had completed another circle around the board. And it just so happened that there just wasn't any available. And that seriously curtailed our building opportunities. It wasn't a requirement, but in order to get a good quality building, it was absolutely necessary and there was none to be had. And the overall simplicity of the scoring I appreciated, but in this case, it left the game feeling a little bit less inspired than something like Kalamala, right? Kalamala has a cute action selection mechanism and a series of dovetailing area majority contests, whereas something like High Rise had the cute action selection mechanism, but ultimately the scoring left me a little unsatisfying. And it was just a little too simplistic, a little too much of much ado about nothing, a little bit too much time trying to parse specific recipes of buildings like, oh, I can't build that building because I don't have a pink. So I guess I'd better go get a pink before I can build a building. Anyway, it was fine. And the buildings were high-rises for the sake of being high-rises. They could have just been numbers. You know, it looked very interesting on the board, but really didn't have any 
you know, physical purpose in the game. I was also somewhat disappointed, and I'll be bringing this topic up later, with the thematic integration of the corruption. There was this notion, and it's it's very much pushed in the copy text and the marketing of this game, of corruption being this trade-off. Well, we can cut corners and be a little bit nefarious in terms of how you manipulate public agencies while you're building these commercial buildings. In practice, it didn't really have any kind of payoff. It didn't even have the interesting level of payoff that you might see in something like Cleopatra and the Society of Architects. The scoring was kind of like that, but lacked the teeth. We were talking about a couple points here and there, by and large. And ultimately, it wasn't even anything interesting. It was just, well, if you go to this space, you can get a random resource. But if you take a corruption, you can take two random resources. To which my response was, what kind of bribe is that? You show up at the stockyards and you say to the guy, give me whatever you got on the lot. And here's a 20. Give me another thing of whatever you got on the lot. Relatively petty complaint, but it did suck me out of the game a little bit and did emphasize your last point about how they they could have been anything that we were building. That's right. And like I said, and never did we care whether we got corruption or not, really, because like you said, the points, there was no real negative. You always took the extra resources because there was no real penalty. I don't think that's accurate. I think we sometimes didn't, but ultimately it wasn't, it didn't feel like a high stakes or difficult trade-off decision. It was mostly just, well, this resource here will give me a point. The corruption will cost me two. Okay, I won't take the extra one. And then there was there was space on the board that reduced your corruption, and usually you could just hit those on the way through, and it really, you know, that didn't penalize you. So, you know, you don't want to add anyway. That is High Rise. I had a very strange session of Cthulhu Death May Die. Got together with Huey and Louie, and we started off the greatest scenario, perhaps in the history of board gaming, the one where you're strapping dynamite to a moose and beaming them up to a UFO. This is something that you actually do in the game. And something you actually do in Canada. It's not really widely publicized because we don't want to, you know, toot our own our own horn as being the heroes of repelling the UFOs. But it's something you learn as a child. Walker, you can't broadcast closely held national secrets above unconfirmed airways. This is just for the Patreon people, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, we were two or three turns in to playing Cthulhu Death May Die on Tabletop Simulator when we started having the effects of madness creep into our sanity. Clearly, this was the effect of the old ones, and they inflicted on us the dread curse of connection lost and server down. Then when I woke up from a fugue state of confusion, I was suddenly playing Keyflower. This is obviously a very pernicious effect of the old ones. Anyway, so Keyflower, which we then played on Board Game Arena, which was not under the dread curse of connection lost is the worker placement kind of sort of auction kind of sort of tile placement game by Bleasdale and Brees. And it's one of those perennial Euro games like Kalamala that I wish I could spend more time playing, that I wish could get more into rotation. You know, when I look at the casualties of the Cult of the New, I very much think of these middleweight, interesting, clever Euro games that I wish I could spend more time. So any opportunity to go back to something like Keyflower was very much appreciated. And I'd never tried the Board Game Marine implementation of Keyflower, it's okay. There's no undo. The endgame scoring is a bit weird because the endgame scoring in Keyflower is a little bit spreadsheety, just a little bit. And in such instances, if you're going to have a digital ad- adaptation, why don't you just have it do the spreadsheet for you and maximize your score rather than have you click on something exploratorily and see your score go down because you can't undo any of the moves you've done. Aside from those gripes, though, it was a great time. I love Keyflower. The rules are precisely the kind of accessible you want in a midweight Euro game that you're possibly going to be returning to only every year or so. And the art remains a delight, even in a digital version. It's lovely to just see your little village grow up. And the different village tiles really do lead to different economic scarcities. Sometimes you're desperately searching for more wood, and there's just not enough wood in the game. Or in this case, there was hardly any transportation capacity, which is honestly one of my least favorite scarcities in the system. When there's not a whole lot of transportation capacity, not a whole lot of upgrade capacity, it kind of puts a damper on things, and everyone's scores can be relatively low. But you deal with the scarcities you have, and the tile variety is one of the assets of Keyflower. So we've talked about Keyflower a lot over the course of the podcast. Anytime we play it, we rave about it. Still remains one of my favorites of that of that era. Again, very clever action system, very clever auction system. Not entirely thematic. Not exactly sure why the blue meeples won't work with the yellow meeples. I'd rather not speculate. I'm sure it goes down to some ancient grudge, perhaps related to the dread curse of Azathoth, because Keyflower is a very strange Cthulhu module now. At any rate, that was my experiences both with Cthulhu Death May Die, kind of, sort of, not really, and Keyflower in point of fact. 
All right, then you and I got to sit down to play Civilization A New Dawn, and specifically with the expansion Terra Incognita. Now, the original game is designed by James Keefen, but the expansion is designed by Tony Fanchi. So I've only played this once before this, and I didn't have a, from what I remember, didn't have a great experience. I'm not sure exactly why. After playing it the second time and having such a great time, I really couldn't put together in my head why I didn't like the first time. I think mostly it's because it was it felt more abstract or not so much of the Civ building, but with all these new stuff that this expansion brings in, I really feel that it brings it all together more than it did in the first place. I'm really happy that Fantasy Flight went back to A New Dawn. For one thing, it's neither Star Wars nor Marvel, and so it's somewhat rare that they would go to this. It's still technically a licensed product in that it's licensed after the Civilization PC game, but I'll take what I can get, Walker. I've never been FFG's biggest fan, but I was definitely a bigger fan of them back before they did a variety of things rather than just churning out licensed products and LCGs. And I, I liked A New Dawn. It was clever. I really liked, again, the action selection mechanism whereby you have this row of cards and you activate a card and how far it is along the track will determine how strong it is and then it goes all the way back and that dovetails with the terrain system. So it uses the map but not in a, a, a dull way. Like I really do appreciate the kind of abstractions that something like Through the Ages does in terms of dispensing with the map altogether. So if you're going to have the map, I want you to do something neat with it. And I felt that A New Dawn did that. The problem that I had with the New Dawn and why I got rid of it after about four or five plays was that the end game was a little bit weird and the military system was quite frankly bizarre, especially in the context of the end game. And actually in Terra Incognita, what they've done is they've taken the military system and made it more pedestrian, made it more like a standard Civ game in that you have armies that move along the map. And strangely enough, counterintuitively, that makes a lot of difference because at least you can see where attacks are coming from. And it leads to a little bit of a better sense of cut and thrust rather than near the end of a game of A New Dawn without the expansion. Suddenly you're attacking wherever you want to and it's just this bizarre back and forth of taking over land. Yeah, I couldn't remember my first game too much, so it was, I was having a difficult time remembering what the expansion brought in. I had to like go through the components and sort of figure out what it was. I didn't even see the army bits. Now, now that you said that, I remember how awful that the combat system was. Like I said, abstracted way, which made it you know disjointed anyway. Now they've also included forts. There are six card places now in your tableau instead of five. They have this new government system, which is very interesting, where. Uh, you can bring in a new government and it lets you shuffle the card, not, not physically shuffle them along faster, but makes boost them, them boost them, makes them count as though there are a couple of spaces further along. There are new dials because there are, there's a whole district mechanic now where you can have all these, you know, either like a theater district or, you know, anyway, bunch of different districts and they're going to trigger when the dial says they trigger. And then the most important part that the expansion brings in is the fact that now you get to play purple. <laughs> that is how I initially pitched it to you, and so I'm glad you appreciated that change. Another thing that they brought in, this is more in terms of the overall direction of the game, and I have to say, I, I confess my ignorance, never having played a Civ Meyer Civilization game, n none of the Civ PC games, I'm, I'm a Tresham Civilization guy, not a Meyer Civilization guy, not that you have to be one or the other. I really appreciate the choice of civilizations they've had, rather than going through a traditional mar endless march of the same old suspects, Instead, we have Indonesia, we have Georgia, we have Nubia, we have a lot of the civilizations that tend to get ignored because we just want to have a parade of white guys. Now, there are plenty of white guys to be had in A New Dawn. That's fine. But I really do appreciate the that a lot of the new factions tended to be from Southeast Asia and from Africa and from far, far Eastern Europe. That I really did like. And the only problem that I have with Terra Incognita, and I absolutely want to play again, and I'm looking forward to more experiences with it, is that at this point, we now have two rule sets that are definitely middleweight. They're not overly complicated, but they have a number of strange bits around the edges. And some of those strange bits from the, from the base game have been superseded by strange bits in the expansion. Some are preserved, and some simple things have been made into little strange bits by the expansion. And as a rules explainer, with these two different documents and these two different rule sets competing in my head, it's just on the verge of what I would consider acceptable for a game of this depth, for a game of this length, and for a game of this quality of strategic choices. 
there are, is a fan effort on BoardGameGeek to issue a comprehensive collective rule document that just has, these are the rules of Terra Incognita from beginning to end in one document. I am very, very much looking forward to seeing the, that product coming to fruition with a fully formatted, nicely realized PDF, which they're on their way to doing, because that will facilitate things like looking up rules. The worst thing as a rules explainer that I have to experience is when someone asks me a question, and my first question is, I'm not entirely sure which book I need to look in to find the answer to this. And that's on top of the fact that some of the rules in the rule books are in strange places, like in the rules clarification section, I completely forgot about this from years ago, they have actual new rules. You should never put actual new rules in the rules clarification segment ever, especially when it's at the end of the rulebook after the index, because that says to me frequently asked questions and just clarifications of things that you've done before, not new stuff. Anyway, complaint I was about over. To say, new stuff belongs in the sidebars or in flavor text where it belongs. <laughs> exactly. So I had a great time. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I am very much looking forward to more experiences with Terra Incognita. I hope this indicates a general willingness on the part of FFG to go back to four-year-old designs, five-year-old designs, whether they need expansions or not, and consider whether there's fruit for more development there, and a willingness to do things that, as I said, are not Marvel or Star Wars. So very keen on Terra Incognita so far. Probably more information to follow. And that is Civilization, A New Dawn. Next up is Finishing Time by Friedman Freeze and published by 2F Spiel. So this is a game about getting off of work and trying to relax because work is terrible and painful for everyone and never fulfilling. <laughs> well, to quote Local H, work is for suckers and the sucker is you. I can definitely respect the fact that in the context of this game where you start off with no right to vacation and an 80-hour work week, that that definitely colors the perspective of what's going on. Well, true, these workers do have it a little rough, I have li- to admit. Just a touch, just a touch. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm gonna uh, compare this a little bit to Hyperborea. I'm sure you have some other examples of games where people are going to finish their round at different times than other people. So in Hyperborea, you're going to empty your bag at different times than other people, and you're going to give your little end round, uh, you know, mechanisms will will trigger off when it's other people's turns, and this is what happens in finishing time as well. There's other actions you can do besides placing your workers. Therefore, once you've placed your last worker, then you do a quick little end round thing, and it could be people still could have workers left and doing their turns at the same time. So it, it's sort of... At the beginning, everyone's sort of doing it at the same time, but it quickly offsets and people are taking their own turns at at odd times. So Finishing Time, whose whose actual German title is Fierabend, was pitched to us, particularly in the Board Game Geek Designer Diaries. And for what it's worth, Walker, I share your concern that Board Game Geek is the official North American distributor of the game. Broadly speaking, if you run the website, with information and reviews about board games, you probably shouldn't be selling games yourself, or certainly not exclusively. Especially exclusively. Especially yes. exclusively. But that's a topic for another day. It was pitched as a game about, well, to put it bluntly, social consciousness and labor movements and balancing the gender equity pay gap and having a work-life balance and all those things. And so I was very thematically intrigued about the possibility of whatever statements this game would be making, about how it would be executed in the context of the game, and also of possibly an interesting economic system. I didn't get either of those things. Instead, what we got was an incredibly bland worker placement game with an interesting tempo element. Because as you say, the moment you put out your last worker, you do a refresh thing. And unlike in Hyperborea, where sometimes you want that turnover to happen as much as possible... In finishing time, you have to be very, very careful about the turnover because at the start of the game, you're working 80 hours a week, your wages are terrible, you're not allowed to go on vacation, and you don't really have the clout to change any of those things. And every time you do your reset, you get hit in the face with the point hammer. And so the game is about build, trying to dig yourself out of this hole. You gradually scrape by a slightly better work conditions. You try to work for uh, better wages. You try to reduce the, the... Well, first you work for a raise, and then after you get a raise a couple times, the path of least resistance is then to worry about the gender pay gap. So even even that wasn't interesting at all. It was just a little side note. But that part was really cool. Trying to build yourself out of the hole and worrying about that was okay. And it really did a lot 
to help compensate for the fact that, as I say, the worker placement really is about as dull as you can get. Yeah, there, but there is blocking there. There's definitely blocking, and there's definitely holding off, trying to time it right, hoping that that person is going to run out of tokens and or workers and bring all of their tokens back so you can place yours out. So I thought there was definitely timing choices there that definitely, even in, in the game that we played near the end, because the end game trigger is when someone hits 40 points, then that will be the last round. So I saw that Mark was about to hit 40, so I there's there's certain spots where you can throw out a whole bunch of workers at once, so I reset my turn quickly before he ended the game and then got all of my workers to try to beat his score. So I think there's definitely some choice there with workers. That... No, I agree, but, but I think you proved my point. The blocking is made interest, interesting by the tempo considerations. So there are the spots that are obviously advantageous, and you have to look and say, when are these spots going to open up by virtue of where my opponents are in their tempo constraints? It's not an interesting trade-off when you've got workers left. You made some crack at the start of the game in terms of explaining things like, this is the spot that's the most valuable. And sure enough, it was. And anytime it was available, we would take it. When it was available was a function of some interesting tempo considerations. But past that, it wasn't anything. So what I would really like is for that kind of what I will broadly call economic cycle of, of gaining points and then losing points again because you have to go back to work, be married to a slightly more robust economic engine and or a slightly more robust worker placement game or something along those lines. As it was, it was one interesting thing coupled with, from my perspective, a rather frustrating lack of thematic payoff coupled with a very trivial worker placement game. So I liked it. I don't know how much I want to play it again. True. This is what I was fearful when I read the rule book. I was just, I was very unhappy at the end of the book because that's what it felt like. It was like you're getting all of these points. And then, like you said, you get hit with the hammer and back. And it's just like this back and forth of just getting the same resource and losing it again. And the game takes up a huge amount of real estate on the board for no reason. I did appreciate, however, how the game encouraged you to go find Random Strange. Yes. It was it was very odd. You would go find a mate, but then it became the mate of your whole workforce, which was odd. And that was Finishing Time by Friedman Freeze. We played a game of Gatefall. Gatefall, for those of you that have been listening to our Pledge of Indifference show, I talked about a couple of times because it was on on or near the kick track charts, and it kickstarted its first set of expansions somewhat recently. It is a deck building skirmishy thing with what has been dubbed by both the Handwerker and other people as not miniatures, but bigatures. These are massive things. 100 mils. 100 mil, at least. And the kind of thing where you look at the back of the box and it's got the picture and it's his actual size and you say, oh, that doesn't look too big. And then you actually see the thing and it looks huge. A number of people have had that reaction, not just me. And the actual gameplay of it is very, very, very simple. It's a dice chucker. And you have a deck which determines how many action points you can spend. And you get gold through various dice results, and you use that to improve your deck, either by calling out zeros from your deck or buying blindly from the deck of twos, threes, and healing cards. Not really any interesting card effects, no card combos here. It's just, what do you have in your hand? Oh, well, that's how many action points I have. And then you rush to go find the other person and smack them as hard as you possibly can. There are some interesting trade-offs with respect to upgrades and such, and the characters look great. They went with fantasy versus post-apocalyptic in the first set, and I'm a little bit disappointed by that. The post-apocalyptic characters seem cool, uh, particularly Firebug. She is amazing. She's got these bunny ears and a flamethrower, and she's great. But the fantasy group is straight out of central casting. You have not Gandalf, you have not Gimli, and you also have a giant ogre who looks amazing, but isn't necessarily full of what you would call personality. So I feel there's a lot of wasted opportunity there. For context, Jack Dyer, the designer of Gatefall, has been talking about all the ideas he has for the game. He has a co-op version planned. He has a semi-co-op version. He has 17 factions on the back burner. I'm like, slow down, buddy. Slow your roll. Take 20% off the top, one thing at a time. And I'm somewhat interested to see what he might do with that. But honestly, this is the same guy who gave us Super Fight, the card game, and many other versions. And so... Given the simplicity of this kind of skirmish game, I don't know what kind of robust things you could glass onto it. But for what it is, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, 100%. I thought it was fantastic. And it's one of those games where you're not going to need a rules refresher every time you play it. You know, next year you pull this out, 
we're going to be able to start playing raw right out of the box because it's just like you said you get to throw a bunch of dice you have the generic stat line and i like how you get to customize your guys i'm interested to see if you can actually do like a if it's actually doable like can you go in a defensive mode and like increase your defense is it actually going to pay off or is the obvious choice to give yourself more power more attacks i thought it was very interesting how uh the different characters had different number of attacks that they could do every turn i thought that was a great way to make them all different and i liked how they definitely felt different even though they all had you know like we just talked about the generic stat line with even just those lines they all felt like what they were so i thought that was pretty cool the system does get a lot of mileage out of very few rule systems the characters are only minimally asymmetrical on paper but in practice they feel rather different even though there's a little bit of the unfortunate thing that i find in some skirmish games of the scrum factor everyone rushes to the middle and then you're just chucking dice but that's kind of offset again by the reasonably cute deck building elements and it's very minimal you're trashing zeros and you're buying twos and threes to supplant your ones. But it ends up feeling like a significant trade-off, given that the other thing you do with your money is, as you said, upgrading your characters. And so you have a reasonably interesting trade-off with respect to the money, a reasonably interesting trade-off with respect to what you do with your deck, and a reasonably interesting trade-off with respect to what characters you want to focus on and when. And all of those do just enough work to make it a thoroughly engaging experience with, quite frankly, ridiculous bigotures and relatively cheap boards tokens and cards but whatever there's a giant ogre with swords sticking out of a huge club i'll i'm okay with that and thankfully they didn't do anything with line of sight or blocking or any of that silliness a little clumsiness about moving the characters around that take up two spaces but other than that i think it was highly inoffensive <laughs> I usually reserve inoffensive for games that I don't want to go back to because there's nothing to recommend them. I think Gatefall is getting by on a substantial degree of charm and maybe a tiny smidge of differentiation because it's got deck building powering the skirmishy thing in a way that I found much more satisfying than I did in Ascension Tactics. In Ascension Tactics, I don't think it quite worked the way they wanted it to, but in the context of Gatefall, I think it works really well just to elevate the basic formula. So yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I played it solo once myself to see if it was worth putting in front of you, and I determined that it was, and so I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did end up pledging for the expansion faction in Gatefall, so probably before then, but definitely after it arrives, I'll be happy to play Gatefall some more. Sweet. That's Gatefall by Jack Dyer, published by Jack Dyer Studios, it's produces Jack Dyer Games. Must have been quite a coincidence for Jack Dyer to submit his design to Jack Dyer Studios, and I hope that there was some sort of rigorous double-blinding procedure so that they didn't give any favoritism to him. It's true. Well, yeah, maybe it was like a family business or something. You and I also got to play Castles of Tuscany, which is sort of like the sister game of castles of burgundy it has much of the same graphic design all of the same you know marble workers all the different uh terrain types but it plays much much differently i had a great time playing it this is by stefan feld published by alia games this is the least feldy design i've played by feld in a very long time before Stefan Feld was Stefan Feld of Stefan Feld Games, he pu published such things as Notre Dame in the Year of the Dragon, uh, even a weird pirate game. They were very, very different in feel from what he's been designing over the past few years. This actually strongly reminded me in a number of ways of Attica by Marcel-André Cassasola-Mercco, in that it was a light middleweight tile placement game where you weren't building up a whole bunch of infrastructure or building up a whole bunch of resources. It was mostly about timing and one-off bonuses and just trying to expand your network as much as possible. And I mean that in the highest possible way. It was surprisingly enjoyable. I had a bit of a tough time with the rule book because the terminology wasn't terribly well done and they, you know, the workers act like stone and the stone acts like workers and a number of other weird things. And so I wasn't terribly enthusiastic, but I was very charmed. It was very neat. It had a number of clever bits with respect to how the supply of tiles enters the system. Everyone has their own full set of tiles, and every time you take a tile from the middle supply, you have to replace it with one of yours. And as a result, that seeks to modulate or at least regulate what people downstream from you are going to get. In other words, 
Walker has a fixed number of really good tiles in his supply to put out, but he puts them out just in time for my turn, for example. And if I always snatch them up, then whoever's downstream from me will always get my tiles, and whoever's downstream from them will, will always give their tiles to Walker, in theory. Although uh, something did occur to me that we didn't see this happen in the game, but it's it's a strategy that seems now so obvious and potentially abusive to this coolness that I I, I almost dare not speak its name. And that is one of the resources you have is marble, which immediately lets you take another turn. And I'm wondering if the w smart way to play is always save one marble, and then any time one of your awesome tiles comes out, you immediately take your next turn and grab it, so that nobody else gets to benefit from the awesome tiles. Now, maybe this is a race to the bottom, and everyone does this, and so now everyone gets their own great tiles and nobody else, and it all comes out in the wash. Anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Very simple. Very straightforward, very quick, very clean tile layer game. Again, I wish that we were all laying tiles on a shared board. That, I think, would have increased the interaction. But as it was, it was very, very efficient in terms of its use. A great light middleweight Euro game. And yet again, like many other great games we've been talking about this week, I would happily play again. Yeah, it's a lot. has a lot less moving parts than Castle Burgundy. I think it'll be a lot easier to teach the yellow tiles in Castle Burgundy, how they all have different you know, endgame scoring and how all the beige tiles have all their own different abilities and all of that is gone there's no dice in this game either so it's I, I, believe it or not a diceless castle of burgundy and the scoring is straightforward the scoring is very straightforward and simple and it's not an endless spreadsheet for you to optimize in castle of tuscany you have like a, a green score dial that is going to keep increasing in numbers and then at the end of a round you get to add that to your actual score so you have sort of like this you know income that i found very interesting it was nice. A radical departure from Steffenfeld's normal output, and happily the kind of thing that I would enjoy playing again. And that was Castles of Tuscany. I'm worried that at this rate, we're going to lose our rep, Walker. I know, right? Because we've liked all these things. I know, we've had such a good week. I love it. I mean, I love it too, but now I'm starting to feel like less, less of a contrarian. What if I'm just a normie like everyone else? Oh, how about this then? I'll bring up something. Cosmic Colonies. I enjoyed it more than you did. Yeah, this is by <laughs> Scott Alms, published by Floodgate Games, which is, I'm glad you liked it since I, I paid for it. Um, <laughs> it's more or less what I thought it was going to be. I was really hoping, what it is, is you're putting these Tetris-like pieces on this map. It's got a, you know, uh, science fiction theme where you're covering up these planet and a different terrain on the planet, and you're playing the card system, I thought was amazing. So you're going to uh, make a deck at the beginning of the game. It's, I don't know. It's four right. cards per player. Four cards per player. Or like maybe a 60-card deck. Was it about 60 maybe? Less than that. Anyway, you're, you're making a, a, a small deck that you use for the entire game. So you're going to get different cards every game. And they're all numbered. And this is going to be your sort of initiative. And they all have these special abilities. I felt some of them seemed to be hand filler. Like some of them were definitely useless and so I'm wondering if they were purposely hand filler or were they just not well balanced or I'm not exactly. What did you think? Well, the cards are kind of sort of drafted in that whatever two cards you play over the course of the round are then passed to the player to your left. So they will get them. So there's an incentive to play the bad cards and then so then someone else is stuck with the bad cards. I don't know if it actually is going to manifest in anything remo remotely resembling balance. It is definitely the case that you see the same cards being played over and over because of the better cards. Some of the card interactions were kind of neat, I think. For example, there's a very, very powerful resource collector card, but if it is played on the same turn as another slightly weaker resource collector card, it won't be able to function to its full advantage. There's also a trade-off about when you play the cards because you have to make a balance between whether their special ability is more powerful early in the round or later in the round. But later in the round, that tile you want might be gone or the resource might be gone. That part was neat. But overall, I agree with you. There wasn't a whole lot going on. I thought the card activation system was 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 clever. I would want to see more of the cards. I didn't sit down then and look at all the other cards we didn't play with. And I don't know how much actual variety you are going to get from play to play with different cards, whether that would actually lead to a, a substantially different feeling. It's hard to make playing with Tetrominoes not fun. And so it definitely felt engaging in that sense. I just, I just wish there was more consequence to where you put the tiles and how and when you put the tiles. Like if they sort of you know, let you cover up different things that let you combo off other stuff or, you know, let you get resources somehow or penalized you a little bit more or just made the actual placement other than just cover the stuff up. 
off you go. And that, that was, that was all you had. And then they had this really interesting card system, but then the actual placement, I thought it fell massively short. I agree. The tile placement of games like My City or of Baron Park were much more satisfying and had much bigger trade-offs, both in terms of tempo considerations and in terms of placement efficiency. And the actual tile-laying element of it was by far the least interesting element of Cosmic Colonies. I agree with you 100% there. The final thing that I'll note is that in terms of balance, Cosmic Colonies has a bit of a problem in that over the course of the game, you want to build certain kinds of tiles as they will give you more points. And the tiles, it must be stressed, don't do anything. They're just different shapes. And covering up various spaces don't do anything either. But based on the distribution of the kind of tiles you want to build, in the game that we played, you and Huey both had the same kind of tile, of which there is a scarce supply, that would give you points. And so you were both competing over it. Whereas the point, the tiles that I wanted to build were not on anyone else's victory cards. And so I was basically unopposed. And I definitely felt it over the course of the game because you and Huey were constantly taking the tiles that each other wanted from the scarce supply, whereas I more or less always had free run of the place. And I couldn't help but feel that that was significantly determinative in terms of the final score. So, yeah, it's a light game. It's hard to diss it too much for being unbalanced in that sense based on the table distribution. But I have to say that in a very strong week, although I enjoyed Cosmic Colonies a fair bit, and I think also it's worth noting that it is my, not a small margin, my favorite Scott Alms design ever. He of the tiny epic games and of Heroes of Air, Land, and Sea, which is not so much a game as a punishment. Cosmic Colonies was the weakest entrant this week of a very, very solid week of games. Agreed. Now on to Seastead, published by WizKids. By Ian Cooper and Jen M. Gonzalez. So this is what they toted as sort of like an offshoot of Flotilla. But two-player only, I had no flea feelings of Flotilla in this game whatsoever, except for the artwork. And it was an odd thing on Board Game Geek where they, they didn't attribute the artist for whatever reason in this game. Huh. So I just I just looked up what whoever the artist was for Flotilla and then inputted that information on the page for them. Good for so, you. Well done. So there was, like you had already said, that you didn't see very much copied art but there was one one image that i definitely knew so but we didn't actually like pull out flotilla and compare but still i thought i love that art sort of it's great art and and the game itself was fantastic what do you think of the game i thought it was a strange choice overall for them to take designers who didn't work on flotilla and who were designing a game that was not at all mechanically like flotilla and set it in the same universe now, is it possible that Ian Cooper and or Jan Gonzalez were like, we would really like to situate our game in the world of Flotilla? Maybe. But I think this is more a case of WizKid saying, hey, we've got some art sitting around. And it's great art. I really like the character art. It's it's really, really cool. But it, it, it's just public. I, I found it overall puzzling from that perspective. I like Ian Cooper. Ian Cooper designed Ascending Empires, the bizarre dexterity slash 4X game about eight years ago. And Seastead was really fun. I quite enjoyed it. It's got a very, very simple building system where you're building buildings around these platforms, which are these hexagons floating out in the middle of the table. They're flotillas, Mark. I'm sorry, Walker. <laughs> They're flotillas. <laughs> Theme. <laughs> and very much like Castles of Tuscany, you're constantly encouraged to build these things, and they're not super expensive. So you're not spending turn after turn after turn saving up for a big thing. It's more about tactically picking your spots. So less of a resource management game than more of a building game. The only part that I didn't fully enjoy, but I could definitely see other people enjoying a great deal, is there's this kind of spatial puzzle element about the bonus tiles. You can build these bonus tiles, which will say, well, did you build a shipyard in this position around the flotilla? Did you build a, a academy around this position of the, the flotilla? It'll give you points around, again, these specific dials that are flotillas. And trying to spatially visualize which bonuses would give me the most, especially near the end, gave me a bit of a headache, and I kind of threw my arms up in the air and said, forget it, I'll just buy this one, even though it may not be the best one for me. But it's got a great tempo to it. It's got some interesting trade-offs. I enjoyed the element of trying to maximize your available discounts and try to figure out how to build your buildings most efficiently. I was very, very pleasantly surprised by Seastead. True, and I think it has a great re replayability factor, right? Because it has the specialists in the game, and it had a huge deck there, and the, the bonus tiles that you just talk, 
talked about, there was, you know, a ton of those. So they're going to change up how they come out every game. And there's A and B sides to all the tiles and cards. So I think playing it over and over again, I think you're going to get different experiences each time. And like you said, once you get to know the bonus tiles, you're actually going to be looking for them and sort of planning out in advance where you put your buildings and then seeing the bonus tiles and putting them where you need them. Ugh, if that's true, I would very much not enjoy it. It's like, oh, I remember I remember the specific spatial configuration of arbitrary arrangement of buildings. So I'm going to build towards that and hope it comes up in the display. I, I, would, I, I would hate a game no, like that. No, I don't that. mean arbitrary. I wouldn't mean like well, that far but- ahead. I mean, there there's the display of three. I mean, seeing the display of oh. three and sort of... okay. Short-term planning. I don't mean like waiting for hoping it'll come up in the deck later on. Okay, good. I was worried for a moment there. Yeah, there's an A deck and a B deck, and there's the A side and the B side, and they seem very different. And this is one of those rare times, it's worth noting, that we played the basic version of the game, the A side, and it was significantly mechanically interesting, such that we would then want to go on to a B side. And it's not just, well, here's the full game and we'll rip some of its guts out. And here's the intro version that we strongly suggest you play because otherwise your feeble mind won't be able to comprehend the wild variants of special character powers. You know how it is in the rule books where they patronize and condescend to you and you're like, no, 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 I'll just play the real game, thanks. But the A sides felt like the real game. So I'm curious to see what the B sides look like. I question how, how much tremendous variety there's going to be, but I don't think that it needs it really. It's all about opportunistic taking advantage of these building advantages and trying to maximize your return on all the buildings you're putting out. And I don't think that you're going to need a, a, a huge influx of different effects from the advisors because the advisors are just one shots. Unlike in, well, Flotilla, for example, where when you're getting an advisor, they're in your deck and you keep playing them over and over. In Seastead, you just, it's just a one shot special power. So it, it, it's less of a, of a built-in economic advantage in that sense. But as I say, I, I like opportunistic building games like this. And, and again, similarly, the Castles of Tuscany, it's, it's constantly about churning out new buildings. And there's a certain joy to doing that. I like resource management as well, but sometimes I just want fewer barriers for putting out my, my, my new stuff. So Seastead was surprisingly engaging. The components were great. The look was great. I'm a big fan of Ian Cooper. This is now the second design of his that was uh, sufficiently different from the normal run of things that I definitely want to see more of his work. Yeah, I recommend Seastead. I'm looking forward to trying the B-side. All right, and finally for me, Wingspan by Elizabeth Hardgrave. So I pulled this out again with my partner. She loves it. We have a thing for birds. We have several bird feeders in the back. So we sort of like this theme. I just want to bring it up because they have a new expansion coming out soon for those who, just because we think it's derivative and brings nothing new to the table, doesn't mean that some people might like it. I enjoy it only because of the joy that the people I play it with have when, they, when they're playing it. So this new expansion has new resources. You're going to get a whole new set of player boards, new dice, more birds. It has this whole resource called Nectar that is a wild resource that you can use for anything. But it only lasts for the turn. There's a whole new phase that you discard all your nectar. Looking forward to more wingspan. Cough. A mí me gusta mariposas. A mariposas. ¿Por qué no jugamos mariposas, Walker? Just because, Mark. Just because. <sighs> so a final note. Not a full comment on a playthrough because we don't want to get into spoilers and there's another reason why we don't want to get into too much detail we did bust out pandemic legacy season zero and we played the tutorial my first comment is that i i'm although not a healthcare professional myself i've spent a lot of years working in the healthcare field and i've had some degree of medical training and i've worked in a clinical context and i think i missed the part in medical training where they taught you how to execute Soviet agents with a shot to the back of the head. I missed the murder section. Because maybe you were sick that day. I, mu- I must have been out. Like, or maybe they just figure, oh, well, you know, the ethicist is in the room. Let's pretend like we don't spend most of our career systematically murdering half of the Eastern Bloc. Well, this is a good time to talk about it, seeing as we don't know any of the bonus content yet, nor do we, have we seen any of these spoilers. So we can say everything that we've seen so far, because we just played the preliminary game. So the emphasis more on this game is that the sickness is is part of the story and not much part of the game, which is an interesting twist. Instead of you know you know going around and eradicating uh, sickness, you're going around and eradicating other humans. Yes, <laughs> because because of theme. Because of theme, precisely. 
the components and here to get into too many details would actually, I think, spoil some of the surprises, even for just the prologue are straight up delightful. It's been a long time since I've been this, this overjoyed at clever use of components and the way that the components dovetail with the theme. And you're going to get that right at the end of the prologue. It's really well done. You really feel like you've got your money's worth already in the sense of what they're doing things. And they're really devoting an effort to mixing up the formula. You know, after having played so many games of Pandemic, so many games of the historical variants of Pandemic, so many games of Pandemic Legacy even, they found a way to make things feel fresh, which is great. Mechanically, I have very serious doubts and very serious misgivings. I can't go into details about those without getting into spoilers, and there'll be another venue for us to talk about that, more on that when we talk about the news. But suffice to say, I was very pleased. My worries are all hypothetical. We'll see if they manifest, or we'll see if they do things. I have great faith in Matt Leacock. I don't really have much faith in Rob Davio anymore. But we had a great time. We sat down. We're going to have an established group to play through Pandemic Legacy Season Zero. And so far, I'm very cautiously enthusiastic. Those were the games that we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, first off, let's talk about the news for the podcast. We don't want to get into spoilers for those that don't want spoilers for Pandemic Legacy Season Zero. So we're going to be launching another recurring bonus feature for our patrons. I have tentatively entitled it Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, The Cure Files, the Committee for Undermining Russian Espionage. I... I have a bit of an acronym problem. We're going to be releasing bi-weekly summaries of our campaign and what's been happening. We're going to go into detail about the funny things that have happened and the joyous exploits of Huey, Dewey, and the two of us. So if you're interested in that, look forward to it on Alternating Wednesdays in the Patreon-exclusive episodes. Oh, by the way, we're still running our special uh, Pay for 10 Months, Get 2 Months Free. Nice. All right, so uh, some VP ex-VPs of Blizzard Entertainment are starting up their own board game company, Mark. Wow. Yes, Chris Menzen and Mike Gilmartin, former VPs of Blizzard Entertainment, are starting a, a War Chief Gaming. They have announced no game so far, but they promised to give us some news by the by the end of this year, so I'm interested to see what they come up with. I'm curious to see what Games Workshop products they'll be ripping off next. Um, apparently, there it was a sort of a gaming group that they formed from you know the Blizzard community, and they felt as though you know now producing games is the next logical step for them. So, well, I I toured the Blizzard studios when I visited my friend who used to work there. He doesn't work there anymore, and they showed me the library. The library in the Blizzard Blizzard studios is all the media they like. So consoles running back decades, video games running back decades, and a whole whack of board games. And I would constantly hear from my friend of all the board games that he was playing with other people at Blizzard. So I confess I'm not shocked. The first expansion to Horizon Wars Zero Dark has been published. This supplement is called Nemesis. Don't worry. Don't worry, Walker. It's okay. How many things are going to be called Nemesis? No, this is the same thing as before. Same thing. Clearly you just... I, I, I was, remember Nemesis, and I, I think maybe when you said Nemesis, my mind just... Of course. Yeah, I, re- I respect the fact that you constantly purge it from your memory. That's okay. When I introduced Zero Dark rather inexpertly to Huey and the Hanverker, we were playing one of the missions from the early draft, the beta release of Nemesis. But now it's been published on Wargame Vault, so you can go and get Operation Nemesis. You can also get it bundled together with Horizon Wars Zero Dark if you don't already have it. Honestly, right now, it's my favorite tabletop miniature system. I highly recommend it if you have any interest in sci-fi skirmish tabletop wargaming. It's got a wonderful solo system, and it's got a great sense of personality, and it's wonderfully customizable. It has my highest possible recommendation. It's very inexpensive to buy the PDFs from Wargame Vault, and now's the best time to jump into the system. This is uh, an interesting designer in the form of Roby Jenkins, who has very interesting things to say, both about game design and about the games industry. And it is very interesting to see his work develop. I've played his prior design as well, namely Horizon Wars. I've talked about it on the podcast, which is not a skirmish thing. It's more of a mass battle, 6 mil, 15 mil kind of deal. But whatever you have, whatever miniatures you've got, you can play them with Horizon Wars Zero Dark. So go check it out on Wargame Vault. There's also a free introductory version, so you can just get a sense of the incredibly clever resolution mechanisms. That is Horizon Wars Zero Dark, specifically Operation Nemesis. Lastly, for me, it's just a statement to uh, first-time designers that are on Kickstarter. 
<laughs> Stop trying to make D20s a thing. <laughs> D20s in board games will never be a thing. Pro tip. <laughs> what? What? Okay, okay, okay. No, I'm not going to talk about the project. I'm just done. Uh, uh, wh- I'm done. Wh- I, I watched wh- the video. What's wrong, what's wrong with D20s? What's I watched the video and I see a D20 roll by. I said, okay. Don't worry, Mike. It's just to mark health or something. Don't worry. Everything will be okay. <laughs> sure enough, Mark, here comes the attack roll, and it's a D20. Just no. Oh, you done. mean you mean the simple yeah, just straight 5% yeah, roll increment. A D20. Okay, okay. I'm done. Okay. Okay. That actually, on the topic of Horizon War Zero Dark, there's going to be a sci-fi version of Frostgrave, namely Stargrave. And I had half a moment of thinking, ooh, I like sci-fi. And Frostgrave, I always thought, was vaguely conceptually interesting. This is by Joseph McCulloch, who did Rangers of Shadowdeep, which I enjoy. And then I remembered, oh, wait a minute. Frostgrave, and one assumes, although we don't know this for a fact, Stargrave work on a D20 system, whereby you might just have a bonus of plus two to plus four or something. And I'm willing to put up with that degree of shenanigans where a rat can roll a 20 against you and you roll a two in a co-op game. That I'm okay with. I'm not okay with that in a competitive game. It does not produce the kind of probabilistic outcomes that I consider appropriate. And so I was willing to pass on Stargrave, at least conceptually. Anyway, last bit of news for me. It is November the 2nd. It is officially Chinese New Year. Happy Chinese New Year, Walker. Happy Chinese New Year, Mark. This is pointed out in the guild. Someone has made the first claim of, oh, there's this Chinese New Year thing coming out. This was Brad Talton of Millennium Blades. Congratulations to Brad Talton and everyone at Level 99 Games for officially kicking off Chinese New Year, the holiday that now starts in November and lasts until July. It's amazing. Did you get me anything for Chinese New Year, Walker? Yes, Mark. I got you a podcast of pain and suffering. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. And now on to our topic of the week, which, based on how long we've spent talking about everything else, we're probably going to keep relatively brief because we don't like to waste your time. And that's okay. We're going to make this efficient. We're going to make this pure pro quality. Sure. I know I know you're looking at the, the runtime, but remember, you edit out mostly everything I say, so that should cut it down quite sufficiently. Walker, if only that were true. So I brought this topic, Mark. It's about games that you have on your shelf that you just seem to pull out all the time that you just want to play. Maybe they're not the best game, but they're why, why are these games on your shelf that, you know, aren't in the top 100 or, or some people don't like, why are they there? So I think there are a number of different categories of games that fall into a sort of lifetime game, or even sometimes even the lifestyle game, although those might be different. And one of the areas, although I confess this doesn't really apply much to me, there's arguably one game that, that I have that I think falls into this category, is games where there's a sheer volume of study. The games where they're an entire universe of study unto themselves, and you could literally spend a lifetime in some cases studying and playing the game and constantly be learning new things about even just the fundamentals. Now, the classic of this in the Western tradition is chess, and you also have games like Go and Shogi. But there's also hobbyist games that fall into this category, like ASL. Advanced Squad Leader is one of those things where the moment, uh, it, it, it's an entire process of just internalizing the rules. And at that point, call it either a sunk cost fallacy or just a genuine enthusiasm. You have people who are now just ASL gamers, this international community of people that play this one thing over and over and over and over and over again. The closest thing that I have anything like that, and I don't know if there's any game that falls into that category for you, is Magic Realm. Having gone through the bother of learning how to play a Magic Realm, it is now just a core part of my gamer identity, and I still pull it out to pour over the rules and play some solo rounds and pull it out on Realm Speak, and it really is just an entire universe unto itself in some ways. I, I, the one I have for that is Gaia Project. Sometimes when you know I I realize I haven't played it for a while, I'll go on you know into onto Board Game Geek and into the forums, and there'll be these whole articles on how to maximize this particular race or why it's slightly unbalanced or what are the you know the first few opening moves for a race or how to play it differently. So that's the same. You can also look at see what games have tournaments, right? Yes. And these are the games that you know will lead well into that type of behavior. Well, and then there are some people for whom it's not a lifetime game, it's a livelihood game. Things like chess and magic, all these uh, these people who play games professionally, and nothing that we play really falls into that category, but it's always impressive to me that, again, th- these are games that have an entire universe to them, and these are people who will devote substantial periods of their life to mastering it, either for just satisfaction or sometimes even re- remuneration. 
True. And it could be something like a setting that really interests you or something related with a hobby that you're also like, a, let's say you're into gymnastics or, or there's even dog agility games out there or something that, you know, you do on the side as well that brings this game out to the table over and over again. Sheer enthusiasm for the theme can absolutely overcome many other things and indeed keep the game forefront in your mind in a hectic release schedule. And even if you're an Omni gamer like like we are and you're constantly having to chase down new games, if you just remember the theme very fondly, that's absolutely going to bring it to the forefront and perhaps keep it in your collection and on your table over the course of an entire life. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about different games' approach to variety. Because a lot of games now, especially Kickstarters, but even non-Kickstarters, have tons and tons of different either scenarios or characters or ways to play, etc., etc. But to my mind, there's the kind of variety that you might see in a game like Project Elite. No slight on Project Elite, but for me, Project Elite is a game that has tons of variety, but isn't quite a lifetime game. Actually, it doesn't even come close. Because, yes, you can be playing a different scenario on a different board with different alien bosses, with different characters, and possibly millions of permutations there, it's going to feel mostly the same from play to play. And that's okay. I like the game and I'm happy to do it. But it's not going to be the thing that I'm necessarily going to be make sure, uh, sure that 20 years from now I'm, I have access to in my collection. Contrast that with other games where on the surface there's less variety and less asymmetry, like Hansa Teutonica, like Tigers and Euphrates, where every game that plays out is radically different from every other game. Yes, in Hansa Teutonica, you have to get upgrades, but what upgrades you get and in what order and who's going to block you how and where and when you go for towns and when you start making connections, etc., etc., etc. Similarly with Tigers and Euphrates, how many monuments are going to come out? When are they going to come out? What colors are you going to be strong in? What colors are you going to be weak in? Are you going to be focusing on internal conflicts or external conflicts? How opportunistic are you going to be? Are you going to make a play for treasures, etc.? Give them a variety and a dynamism that a lot of other games just can't touch. And that's one of the reasons why I think many, many years from now, we're still going to be pulling out games like Hounds of Teutonica and Tigers and Euphrates. And that's even independently of just their sheer quality. They do have sheer quality, but just the difference from play to play is so huge. That's one of the things that I look for in, a, in, in what I would call a lifetime game. So in some of the companies uh, help you with this by making games like a living card game where they sort of hit you, you know, every month or so with a little mini expansion to keep this in your interest, in your mind. And the collectible games also lead into the same sort of thing where you're, you want to buy over and over again to slowly collect all of the cards and then therefore, you know, want to play it over and over again. Sincere question, though. I sometimes feel as though living card games in particular might fall into a trap of, yes, you'll, you'll, they're, they constantly push themselves to the top of your queue, but only so long as they're supported. And I can't help but feel, and maybe this is cynical, maybe this is not true, that based on past performance, all of these living card games will eventually stop being supported. The only game that's persisted is Magic the Gathering, which I think, again, is very much a lifestyle and a, and a lifetime game for lots of people. I, I would I would compare this to something like Gloomhaven, which falls into this uh, under the same category. Gloomhaven can be an all-totalizing experience, and if you want Gloomhaven to be the entirety of your hobby life, it can be, for a while, and you do eventually run out. Not a criticism. What I'm saying is after you play Gloomhaven a hundred times, <laughs> you know, maybe it's going to reach the end of its cycle, and maybe you might want to replay missions, and maybe you might want to go back to the earlier sets of your of your of but, your expired living card game but with but, different characters like gloomhaven is is i think is much is huge it is huge but it's it feels to me finite in a way that tigers and euphrates and even hansa teutonica does not i think gloomhaven is a better game than hansa teutonica in a lot of ways i mean they're, they're radically different comparing the two is a little bit absurd but it's kind of sort of what we do and in a universe of top 10 lists whatever gloomhaven is a top 10 game for me hansa teutonica is not it's not even a top 20 game but Hansa Teutonica feels like a vaster universe to me than Gloomhaven. Do you understand what I'm getting at, at least? Yes, I understand what you meant with the with the every single game being different every time you play. Where Gloomhaven, it sort of plays out relatively the same. It, it's again, it's a little bit of the question of what kind of variety are you getting. And yes, playing different classes in Gloomhaven leads to a different experience. And yes, they have different scenarios. But to some extent, it feels like in terms of the decision-making, in terms of the strategy, in terms of the overall play experience, Gloomhaven has a half-life that other games don't. 
other uh, other very rarefied games. Like compare Gloomhaven to ninety nine percent. 99.9% of the games in the universe, yes, Gloomhaven has more variety and more longevity. But there's a kind of feature that I'm trying to get at. The kind of strategic horizon that is constantly shifting, whereby the fundamental playing pieces don't ever change, but the overall horizon of how they interact on the board, like the, the platonic ideal of this is probably Go. I don't really like Go, it's not my thing. But it's that kind of difference. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. This is Fertile Ground. We will probably be returning to similar topics at some time later, but it is late. It is time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>